Father, thank you for the fact that uh, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, you have given to us. Uh, You have given us uh, your word, and you have given us uh, the Spirit of God to live within us and to instruct us, and you've given us uh, the people of God that we walk with. That's a great package. We're grateful for it. We lead busy lives, and we have much on our plates. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's us. It's a lot of us in here. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So that's why we're here, Father. We're here to learn from the Lord Jesus and from his truth. Many of our Bibles uh, have been put together in such a way that the words of Christ are in red. But we understand that uh, if they're going to print the words of Jesus in red, then the whole thing ought to be in red. Because it's all the word of Christ. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We thank you that it's a sure word. We thank you that it can be counted upon. we're, we're, We're grateful that you tell us in there how we should live. There are principles in there that are, that are guardrails for us to keep us from going over the edge. Thank you for truth. We thank you that truth is narrow. There's not room for a lot of different views. Your gospel is narrow. And that's not real popular today in our culture. We want room for everybody and room for every expression and we want room for every opinion. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So tonight our focus is on your word and what you have to say to us as we are walking through life We've got experience because we've learned, uh, lived a certain amount of years, but um, we're all facing new things and new challenges. Uh, No matter how old we are or how mature we are, we're all facing things that we have not faced before, and therefore we need you and we need your wisdom. So we ask that you'd instruct us. We ask that you'd teach us. We have nowhere else to go for truth. But we're grateful that you have called us to yourself and that you have revealed yourself to us. We've got different needs. We've got different issues. We've got uh, different things we're juggling and balancing in our lives. But all of those things are there for a reason, and they are there to drive us back to you. So tonight, Lord, show us how to live. Give us some real wisdom. Real wisdom. 
Help us, Lord, to pull back from the urgency and from the immediacy of where we are and, and help us to ponder and look at the big picture of where we're going and what it is that you want to do. I pray for the guys who are here tonight and they're frustrated because a fog has sort of settled on them in their lives. And they're not seen real clearly. Uh, it's like they're driving down the road, but it's, it's so dense, the fog, they can't even see the white line on the road. And that happens to all of us from time to time. Uh, things aren't real clear. And that's frustrating, especially when that goes on for months and months and months. We just long to break through and to get some clarity. Um, don't let us become weary in well-doing. May we just keep walking by faith and trusting in you. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Yogi Berra never fails to amaze me in his ability to comment on life and the realities of life. Literal books, as you know, have been published on just the sayings of Yogi Berra. I found one this week I'd never seen before. Perhaps you've heard this one. Yogi said, you should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. Now, I think there's real wisdom there, especially, especially as we are going to uh, pretty much camp tonight in Genesis 42. Now, I need to give a little clarification. For you guys that have been here with us in our study, you know we're going through Joseph. Well, on Sunday, I, I spoke for Chuck, and what I kind of did was I kind of jumped to the end of our study on Joseph. And I kind of I went to the last chapter and summed up the whole thing. I knew some of you guys were there, but I saw about half of you asleep, so I wasn't real worried about it. <laughs> we'll circle back. We'll get there again, and we'll cover some of the same stuff and different application. Um, if if um, you were there on Sunday and and this is your first time here, you should know that. Um, We've been going through a study on Joseph, and that was the last session of the Joseph study, but um, we still got some ground to cover. Uh, in, in other words, uh, it, made me, it made absolutely no sense for me to do that on Sunday, uh, except that I felt compelled to do it, so I did. So we'll just fill in the blanks and, you know. You'll see me next week? I may not be here next week. I may be, um, I might be in Chicago. Oh, that's where I was, was in Chicago. I'm still not recovered from that. I got to tell you. I went home Sunday and slept four hours. And then I went to bed at midnight, and I slept till like 6.30 or 7. No. No. Not when you turn it off. Not when you rip it out of the wall. It can't ring. I learned that, so anyway. Well, so that, that's kind of what we're doing here tonight. And, and the reason the Yogi Berra um, statement has merit, you should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. The reason it has merit, I think, for chapter 42 
is that uh, these brothers of Joseph are about to attend their own funeral. And not only are they going to attend it, see, they had attended Joseph's memorial service. But what's going to stun them and shock them is that Joseph's going to show up at their funeral. Uh, They're not going to physically die, but uh, they're going to die. They're going to die from from shock. What, What is the phrase that we've been using in the past in Iraq, the, uh, it's shock and awe. That's what happens to Joseph's brothers in Genesis 42. Now, we got to pick up, though, in Genesis uh, 41, beginning with uh, verse 53 to kind of get the context. Um, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, Just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Why was there bread? Because Joseph had told Pharaoh, "Um, here's the meaning of your dream. There's going to be seven years of prosperity, and then there will be seven years of famine. You better appoint someone to manage the prosperity and to budget it and to uh, administrate it so that there is enough to get through the seven years of famine that's coming. As you know, Pharaoh looked at Joseph, and he said, you're the man, and all the years of training in Potiphar's house as a slave, and then in the jail as an inmate, but being promoted again as he was in Potiphar's house, and learning responsibility and administration, and all of those things that he would need. They all came into play. So Joseph is now the number two man. Um, no one is more powerful than he, than, 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 than Joseph, than Pharaoh. And so he's the guy administrating all this. He, he writes all the checks. He gives all the commands. And it's working. This isn't FEMA going to New Orleans. This thing is actually... I saw FEMA trucks on the way here, I think, that were still trying to get in there. It, uh, it was a, that was a mess, that Katrina thing. This was working. This was coming together. In all the land of Egypt, there was bread. 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. That's what you call power. Uh, That's what you call privilege. That's what you call status. Um, Amazing to think that all that was given to him in a moment, and the moment before, he had just been a slave. He had just been an inmate with no rights and no power and no privilege and no rank and Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptian, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. So just as the Lord had said, uh, 
there, were, there was going to be prosperity and there was going to be famine. We, on, on Sunday, I talked about the providence of God and the fact with providence, I mean, and really, when you cut it down to its lowest common denominator, what the providence of God is, is that what God creates, God sustains, God provides for. And we talked about the fact that God is in charge of everything, all events, all circumstances, weather, famine, calamities, people. He's in charge of everything. He runs everything. He runs circumstances. Um, in one of the services, I mentioned the fact that without the providence of God, if God wasn't in absolute control, there would never be answered prayer, ever. Uh, someone came up to me during one of the breaks, and they said, well, we were talking last week, some of us, about Hezekiah and about prayer, because Hezekiah was going to die, and he asked the Lord that he wouldn't die, and God gave him 15 more years. So yeah, it's the providence of God. Well, that kind of baffles me. I said, why does it baffle you? Because um, uh, it, looked, it looks like God changed his mind. And the question would be, did God know he was going to change his mind before he changed his mind? What's the answer to that? Yes. yes. So he didn't change his mind. <laughs> but you see, that's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, man, morphe, form. Um, God will be spoken of in human terms so that we can identify with him. The arm of the Lord. The Lord doesn't have an arm. God the Father doesn't have an arm. The Spirit of God doesn't have an arm. Jesus has an arm because he's the God-man, but not the Father and not the Spirit. Anthropomorphism. They're spoken of in human terms so that we can identify. So the providence of God is the reason we have answered prayer. The providence of God is the reason that we have prophecy fulfilled. You can't fulfill prophecy unless you have a God that controls everything. So once again, this guy has a dream. There's an interpretation, seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. It's happening right on schedule to a T. Why? Because we have a God who's in absolute control. Now in 42.1, so, so what will we get there in 41.50 to 57? We, we kind of get an update on Joseph and what's going on in the world as he is in his a position of destiny and his position of power. Uh, 42, uh, I almost wanted to write in my notes in the margin here in my Bible, uh, back at the ranch, because that's what you've got. Back at the ranch, you've got his brothers. They're 300 miles away. They're north in Canaan, and uh, we shift scenes. Now, Jacob saw, this is Joseph's father. Joseph saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said, uh, did I say Joseph? See, I'm still tired. I'm just pointing that out, but at least I caught it. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? I really like that. You dumb oafs. What are you standing around with your finger up your nose for? We got a problem here. What, what, what's the, we do? Yeah, we do. Verse 2, he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain. What's the problem? There's famine. There's nothing to eat. We're running out of bread. Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Sometimes the, the next step is real clear. You just need to go get some food so we don't die here in this family. 
This famine's everywhere. It's even up here in Canaan. Um, I, I want to uh, I, I want to set the stage for 42 by making an observation. I want to I'm going to make how many tonight? Seven. I make seven observations <clears throat> out of this text in uh, in Genesis 42 because the the what's happening in uh, in in Genesis 42 is that the the chickens are coming home to roost. It had been years and years and years since they had sold Joseph into slavery. But things are going to change real fast in their lives, and they're in for some rude awakenings. Um, Out of this text, the first observation I would make is this. Moral shortcuts always have long-term implications. One more time. Moral shortcuts always have long-term implications. The thing about a shortcut is, um, somebody will say, oh, yeah, you're going, oh, yeah, sure, but there's a shortcut. Oh, yeah, you take this back way. We've all had experiences with that where the shortcut turned out to be a long cut. And uh, whenever we are tempted to make moral shortcuts, um, you, you can guarantee it's going to bite you later. Moral shortcuts always bring long-term implications. Now you say, well, what was the moral shortcut? Well, when you go back to Genesis 37, when they sold Joseph into slavery, <clears throat> why would they do that? Well, they were, I mean, when you, when you stop and think about it, they're the big brothers. Um, he's the second to the youngest. Uh, he was born of Rachel. Um, they had other mothers, some Leah, some the handmaidens. Uh, in a sense, because Rachel was the, the wife of promise and Joseph was the firstborn, I mean, really, Jacob looked at him as the heir. That's why he was given the coat, probably. He was the, he was the favored son you know that Jacob got deceived by Laban, if you know that story. And so Joseph was really the firstborn son by the promised wife, which was Rachel. And so these guys were jealous of him, and they hated him. He was younger. Uh, he had had some dreams that one day, and he shared it with them, that one day they would serve him and bow down to him. <clears throat> In his immaturity, he shared that with them, and that really kind of ticked him off. And they hated this kid. They had a vendetta for this kid. They had jealousy for this kid. And as he is coming out to to meet them, they decide they're going to kill him. Um, uh, Reuben steps in, and and, uh, so they put him in a pit while Reuben's away. They're going to sell him. And they decide to sell him to these slave traders. Now, here's the deal. These guys really didn't stop and think about the long-term implications of that short-term decision. It was impulsive. They were mad. They, they, they weren't thinking straight. They, their hatred had gotten to such a degree that they were willing to commit murder. Um, but then they figure out we could sell him and make some money and dip the coat in blood and all of that. Um, See, that was their moral shortcut. Now, here's the deal about moral shortcuts. 
Moral shortcuts always have long-term implications. They're always going to come back and get you. Somehow, some way. And the reason they took this moral shortcut, if you could put yourself in their mind, if you could interview these guys and ask them, hey, let me ask you, what are you thinking right now? You see this slave you know, traders coming by on their camels, and they're getting closer. Tell me what you're thinking. <clears throat> you know what I think they'd say? Well, we're going to get rid of this kid. He's a real irritant. Okay, and, and tell me why you're going to get rid of him. Well, because it'll improve our life. He just won't be around anymore. Because I'm just tired of this, and I'm tired of dealing with him, and I'm tired of living in this situation. So you're going to get rid of him. Yeah. And how do you think you'll feel when you get rid of him? Well, I think I'll be happier. A lot of times, the motivation for moral shortcuts is that we think that moral shortcut will make us happier. We think it'll bring immediate peace. We think it'll, be, it'll bring immediate relief. But there, there is where the enemy lies and where he distorts. The enemy can never deliver what he promises, ever. He can, he can never, never deliver what he promises. Uh, he will always disappoint you. So, you know, these guys would fit in real well with our culture today because a lot of decisions are made and a lot of moral shortcuts are taken. Why? Because we think that in some way, shape, or form, it's going to make us happy. And that, and that really has become the motivating factor in so much of what we do is, is we, we want to be happy. Don't I have a right to be happy? I'll never forget um, a guy who was... Uh, he was probably in his late 60s, and uh, I was meeting with him, and I was about 30. And uh, the reason I was meeting with him was, and, and this guy was real involved in the church and in evangelical ministries and that community. He had his own camp that he had built and financed. And, you know, he was just, I mean, he was just kind of a pillar of the evangelical church in that particular area. And uh, the reason I was meeting with him was not to see if he could disciple CMM guys or, or teach a class, but I was meeting with him to talk with him about why he was involved with a 19-year-old girl at his camp. And he was married, and he had four kids that were growing up. And, and I remember talking with him, and a real big guy, a real aggressive guy, you know. And I'm asking him different things, and he'd even quote scripture to me and all this. And I remember at one point, he just got real frustrated, man. He just... He just kind of lost it, and he just slammed his hand down on my desk after about 30 minutes. He just went, just like that. And he looked over at me, and he said, don't I have a right to be happy? I said, uh, actually, you don't. Where'd you ever get that? You got any memory verses on happiness there you want to quote me? I said, what about your wife? That's your... Uh, humiliating and discarding like a worn-out paper towel. Does she have a right to be happy? The guy was making a complete idiot of himself. Embarrassing his family, his wife, his kids. I mean, they, they were just humiliated. But, and, and you see, this guy was real conservative. I, I mean, this, this guy was conservative, right-wing, believed in all, you know, mm, pro-life, mm, you know, but you know what? The guy was no different than some hippie over in Berkeley because he had adopted 
He'd never grow his hair long, and he'd never smoke dope. But he had adopted the philosophy of moral relativism of the 60s. Don't I have a right to be happy? Actually, you don't. You have a right to be responsible. You have a right to do what you need to do as a man, as a Christian man. But to run off and discard your family and act like a fool? No, you don't have that right. Well, at that point, nobody was stopping him, and he went on his merry way. And dropped dead in his front yard about three or four weeks later. Moral shortcuts always bring long-term implications. And these guys are about to experience the long-term implications. Here's my second point out of um, Genesis 42. Economic uncertainties are controlled by divine realities. One more time. Economic uncertainties are controlled by divine realities. So here are these guys. And what's their issue and what's their problem? Is it the price of oil and they all have SUVs? That's not their issue. That's kind of our issue. You know, and where are we going to get the oil? And, you know, and, you know, the Alaska and do we drill? We can, you know, all, you guys know. We got certain issues we're dealing with. They weren't dealing with those issues. But they had their economic issues. And what were their economic issues? Their economic issues were there's famine. Famine. That was their economic uncertainty. Economic uncertainties are controlled by divine realities. God controls all these things. God controls all these issues. And you know, we're just walking through life. And see, we're very focused on what's ahead of us and what, what you've got on your plate and what I've got mine. And we got our list and our to-do list and you know, we're juggling this and doing this. We're right there. <clears throat> and God is concerned about those things, but, but see, God's running everything, everything. And these issues and these economic, so interest rate, you remember under Carter, interest rates were like, I, I remember a friend of mine bought a house and it was 19% interest on that house. Um, <clears throat> unbelievable. Well, God controls all. We're always facing different kinds of economic uncertainties. But the fact of the matter is, those things are controlled by divine realities. But those things, you know, this is what keeps me going, to be honest with you. The reason I hammer this stuff so hard is that this is what keeps me going in life. The stuff that I face, the stuff that I deal with, I've always got to remind myself, wait a minute, God is running this deal. This, is no, this isn't just happening. This isn't just me going through life and facing life. And the, There's a plan here. There's a reason this stuff is going on. Now, do I know what the reasons are? No. But there is a God who is in absolute control of my life and everybody else's life. <clears throat> there was a reason there was going to be a famine. There was a big reason. God's pulling all kinds of different things together that he's going to do through this famine. We hit famine sometimes. God's going to pull things together in your life through that famine that would never occur through seven years of prosperity. He uses both. 
He uses the good times and he uses the tough times. And he uses them as he chooses and they are never out of his control. They always obey his command. That helps me. Number three. Unforeseen crisis stems from sovereign strategy. I'll give you that again. Unforeseen crisis. And what's their unforeseen crisis? There's a famine. They didn't know Pharaoh had had a dream, did they? They're up in Canaan. They're just hanging out doing what they normally do. So all of a sudden, there's a famine. Hey, we got a problem, guys. That was an unforeseen crisis. Well, unforeseen crisis stems from sovereign strategy. There's a reason there's going to be a famine. So in 42, 1 through 5, we, we get some more. We read the first couple of verses. <clears throat> he says, go get some food so we may live and not die. Look at verse 3. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. That's all by divine plan. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So there were two sons by Rachel. The promised wife. Benjamin, who's the youngest, and Joseph, who's the oldest. He'd already lost Joseph. He sure as heck wasn't going to send Benjamin. Okay. Next verse. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Do you see the sovereign strategy behind the unforeseen crisis? He's forcing them to Egypt. He already has Joseph in place. See, God's always working. He's always working. That's why Sunday we quoted Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. He's always working. He's always working the plan. Well, I, I, I'm just sitting here at this intersection and I got this red light going. Then Wait. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stayed still, they stayed still. That's a pretty good way to live life. When he leads you to move, move. But there are times he wants us to wait. There are times he puts us on hold. That's the hardest thing for us as guys. We, We hate being on hold. Uh, Henry Blackaby has said the mantra of Christian men is, um, what is it? Don't just stand there, do something. Right? Oftentimes God will say to us, don't just do something. Stand there. Wait. We don't want to wait. The truth we're knowing, we've got a lot of guys in here that are frustrated. You know why you're frustrated? Because God's got you waiting for something. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're tired of waiting. Well, listen, this is all coming to a head now. Did Joseph had to do some waiting before this could all happen? Yes. Okay. This gets really interesting. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed Let me get some water here. Having a little throat problem here. Joseph's brothers came, catch this. 
and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. (laughs) That's the providence of God. He controls all things. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. They hadn't seen this kid in how long? 20 years. Yeah. He was 17. He's now at least 37. He's probably he's somewhere 39. They hadn't seen him in 20 years. And Joseph is speaking Egyptian to them. Uh, look at verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams which, we, which he had about them. Uh, flip back to Genesis 37. Let's look at those dreams. Because this, this is where some of the jealousy stemmed from. Verse 5. Um, well, there were, there were some reasons. Um, look at um, verse 2. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock while his brothers, with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. That kind of ticked them off. Uh, do you think his dad appreciated the truth? Sure. Because his dad knew anyway they were messing around. Now, Israel, Israel meaning uh, Jacob, loved Israel. Gosh. Jacob, let's try it again. Israel, when's spring break? Oh, that was last week. Okay. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream. And related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his fathers and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Yes. But none of them knew that. So you get back to 42. Joseph had been through a lot. I mean, Joseph, hey, this was just a normal day. He's out there. He's got people coming to buy. You know, he's out. He's doing this. All of a sudden, it's over. And there they are. I mean, he didn't have, I, he had no idea. It was, it was just time to interact with him. Got a principle here, and this would be number four, and this principle is simply this. Delayed dreams are not necessarily denied. One more time. Delayed dreams are not necessarily denied. Sometimes God puts something in our heart and what happens is life starts going a different way, and in actuality, that dream is something he put within you. 
But what happens is life takes you a different way and circumstances take you a different way. And, and many times you'll forget about it. You'll bury it. It's over. It's done. It'll never happen. And then God will work sovereignly. And that's what happened to Moses. The dream of Moses was to deliver his people from bondage. And as we know from our study, he tried to do that at the age of 39. And he blew it big time. He tried that. He was done with that. Never. And so 40 years later, when God approaches him in the burning bush, and God said, now it's time for the dream, he wanted nothing to do with it. Let's keep moving. Um, <clears throat> here's, here's principle number five, and um, then we'll read the text. Principle number five is this. Every action has a reaction, and every choice has a consequence. One more time. Every action has a reaction, and every choice has a consequence. We pick it up in nine. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies, and you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. He must add a little chuckle over that. We're members of First Baptist of uh, Canaan. We're here by transfer of letter. You know? We went to the Gaither concert the other night. Hey, we're in the camp. We're good guys. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Now here they happen to be telling the truth. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now what's going to happen is Joseph is going to play hardball with these guys. And Joseph is going to get rough. And some people read this and they get, well, now he wasn't real loving. <laughs> well, and you know, here he's very spiteful and he's very vengeful. I don't think he is spiteful and I don't think he's getting revenge on these guys. You, you, you know what I think he's doing? And we'll see this in a minute. I think God is using Joseph to test these guys because there needs to be some deep reconciliation that needs to happen, and it can't be superficial. So let's keep going. He said in 12, no, you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land, but they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Oh, really? And why might that be? But he doesn't go into that. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He's really putting the screws on him now. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. So he put them in a confined space just as they had put him in a confined space. Okay. 18, now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, Go carry grain for the famine of your household. 
and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they, now catch this. Look at this. See, every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. And these guys are not the smartest boys in school, but even they are starting to pick this up. Notice uh, 21. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Now catch this. Man, this is agonizing right here. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And they were right on the money. And then Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. I saw an 18-year-old kid interviewed the other night on TV who was in prison for life for murder. It, it was so sad. It, it, was, it, it just, I mean, I was fighting back tears for this kid. The, the, the remorse, the regret. The, and he, he said, I did it. I did it. I never should have been with those guys. And it's cost me my whole life. Every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. You guys remember, some of you old guys will remember Sam Levinson. You remember him? He used to be on TV in the 50s and 60s. When, what was that show with Gary Moore? No, that was with... No, to tell the truth was the, or maybe it was to tell the truth. It was one about secret. I've got a secret. I've got a secret, yeah. And he was on the panel. He was a former school teacher, Sam Levinson. Any of you guys remember Sam Levinson? Any you guys have a TV? <laughs> but he was this real pithy school teacher, and he had all these, and, uh, and, and I, I read a quote by him the other day. I hadn't thought about him in years, but he, it went like this, something like this. Wisdom, wisdom is starting to say something stupid and then not saying it. Personally, I found that to be very profound. I mean, it's not real hard, is it? You're going to say something stupid and then you decide, you know what, I don't think I'm going to say that. Well, that's very wise, not to say something stupid. It's very wise not to do something stupid, right? See, we all have things we regret. We all have things we regret doing. We all have things we regret saying. Uh, and we've all felt the reactions, and we've all felt the consequences. <laughs> See, if there can be a moment when instead of being impulsive, if we think if we ponder, if we think about the fact, wait a minute, what is going to be the consequence of this action? 
What is a reaction has a reaction. What is this going to be in my life? Is this worth it? Is it worth it to take this step? Well, see, these guys know, man, this is all coming back on us right now. See, they had, and listen, they had no idea. They're just going to Egypt to get food. And now suddenly, their whole lives have changed. Here's this guy, and this guy is playing hardball with them. He's got him in prison for three days, and now they've got to go back and they've got to do the very thing their dad said I won't do, which is to release Benjamin. There's no way I'm going to do this. And, and, and if not, they're going to be in even more trouble. So that takes me to the next principle. Because this is what you've got going on here. Uh, principle number six is this. Godly discipline leads to godly character. Flip over to Hebrews 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. How many of you had fathers who loved you? See your hands, okay? How many of those fathers disciplined you? Okay? Now, some of you guys perhaps had fathers, and you struggle with whether or not they loved you because they didn't discipline you, they abused you. There's a difference between discipline and there's a difference between abuse. But you, you know if your dad loved you. And, and you knew if he disciplined you, you, you knew that you deserved it. You didn't like it, but, but you knew it was right. So with that in mind, we look at uh, Hebrews 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves... He disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, in our culture, quite a few. By the way, that 18-year-old boy who was in prison for murdering that other kid, what kind of relationship do you think he had with his father? Well... He didn't say, but you know what? If I was a betting man, I'd bet he didn't even have a relationship with his father. Right? See, a lot of times our dads, they discipline us, and you know what it does? It keeps us out of jail. Keeps us out of trouble. And why would that be? Because we know if we do wrong, we're going to get it. And we don't want to get it. And we don't want him taking that strap and whipping our rear end a few times. Now, why would he do that? Because he wants us to know that he's serious and he means business. Okay? So that's why I said on Sunday in one of the services, we were talking about Will, and I said, you don't let your four-year-old run your family. Well, some of you do. And some people do. And if you let your four-year-old family, you're going to ruin his life, and he's going to ruin your life. So you got to get control. Well, how do you, he's very strong-willed. I bet he is. So what do you do? You discipline him. And you can't let him win. And it'll tear your heart out sometimes if he's really, really, really strong-willed, but you can't let him win. Discipline your son while there is hope. 
the scriptures say. So look at this, seven. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate children and, have not, and not sons. Did you catch that? If you haven't been disciplined by God, you don't know him. Because he disciplines those whom he loves. He'll put, he, will, he will deal with us when we get off track. He's not throwing us out of his family. He's not writing us out of the will. He's not going to court and disadopting us or unadopting. He's not doing that. He's just going to discipline us. He's going to train us. Furthermore, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and lived? Catch this. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That may be the greatest understatement in the Bible. <laughs> I really like that. It just You go right by it and never get it. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Well, I'd say amen to that. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it. Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Joseph's brothers were in the process of being disciplined. He had to discipline them. These guys were going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. There, there was a lot that God had in mind for these guys. And there was a lot of work that had to be done. So we continue. You guys still there? You still with me? All right. Um, so in 21 and 22, Reuben's saying, hey, guys, I told you and you wouldn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Now at 23, we start a new section down to the end of the chapter, and then I'll give you the principle in a minute. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood. For there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. That had what a poignant moment here. He is a witness to his brothers coming full face with the consequences of what they had done to him years before as a teenage boy. The reality was hitting them right in the face. God, God is dealing with us right here, and he sees it. They have no idea who he is. They have no idea he can understand what they're saying, but he's seeing the whole thing. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. They're going to go home. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of a sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. Now catch this. And their hearts sank. Or literally in the Hebrew, and their hearts went out. <laughs> you guys play ball, and you had a bad knee. You got a knee and just go out on you sometime? You're just standing. This knee right here, sometimes, I was standing in the kitchen a couple weeks ago talking to Mary, and I just, it just went out. 
Their hearts went out. Bottom dropped right out. Nothing to hold them up. When they saw that money was in there, these guys are in big trouble. He said to his brother, my money has been returned. Behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? I'll give these boys one thing. They understood providence. They didn't say that some Egyptian official, they didn't say that this guy has done, or a bureaucrat, or what is this that God has done to us? So the last observation is this. And we, and we ask the question, uh, and who was doing this? Joseph was doing this. He was the instrument of God. <clears throat> he was pretty hard on these boys. Now the question is, why was he being so hard? Well, I think it's because he was an instrument of the Lord, as Hebrews 12 just indicated to us. And here's the principle. Shallow repentance leads to superficial reconciliation. There was a huge breach in this family. There was great sin. There was great distrust. There had been great jealousy. This this was a classic, all-time dysfunctional family. You see a lot of dysfunctional families in the Scriptures. David's was another dysfunctional family. And you know, that happened to, there's no perfect families. There there are no Norman Rockwell families that don't have issues. Um, And everybody's got something. Everybody's got a weird uncle. Everybody has got something at Christmas that you're all looking forward to coming together and you find out what's his name's coming. You go, oh, gosh. <laughs> well, tell him we're going to be at Grandma's house, and we'll meet at Aunt Kathy's house. You know what I'm talking about? Sure you do, because in your family, you've got that. Everything's great. You're all going to find out, oh, they're coming. Gosh. You don't want to be with them. You don't want to hang out with them. Why? Because they're dysfunctional. Because they got issues. Because instead of having a good time, you know they're going to cause a bad time. And there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be difficulty. And there's residue left over from years before. See, every family's got stuff. How is that ever healed? How is that ever fixed when there's a breach? Usually when there's a breach, what happens is there's, for some reason, whatever occurred, what's happened is there's a loss of trust. There's no trust. I mean, these brothers, these brothers told him, we are honest men. Really? Uh-huh. You're honest men. They had no idea who they were talking to. Um, so how do, you, how do you heal in a family when there's been... See, what had happened here? There had been unbelievable betrayal. That happens in families. Or maybe, uh, maybe you've been betrayed by a guy you started a business with or your best friend from college. Guys, some guys in here, you've had that happen to you. Someone you were really close to, someone you guys clicked, you were on all cylinders, you were brothers. I mean, you were together for the long haul. You got betrayed. Or maybe it was, uh, it was your wife. And she's seen somebody else on the side, and you didn't know anything about it, and she's hiding it from you, and she's lying to you and all this. And, and, or maybe it was you who was doing that. And see, what happens is in those deals, um, 
there's a huge breach and trust is, is lost. Um, years ago, man, probably 15 years ago, I was doing a, a marriage conference and, and a couple came up to me at the end and they asked if we could meet just very briefly and I said, I got about an hour because I got to go to the airport. And we just, we were in a hotel and we just sat down in the coffee shop. And the guy said, well, let me just cut to the chase here. You don't have much time. He said, uh, we've been married, you know, what, 15 years and we've got three kids and we go to such and such church. And, uh, he said, I've known the Lord, raised in a Christian home. Uh, he said, I got involved with my secretary about a year ago. Sexual relationship, you know. And uh, it was wrong. I'm telling you it's wrong. No justification whatsoever. I was wrong. Here's what I've done. I've cut it off. She's no longer with us. I don't see her. I don't talk to her. I've had no communication with her. He said, here's the problem. And I haven't talked to this guy in six months. He said, I've done what I can do. He said, my wife won't trust me. And she's sitting right there. And I looked over at her and she said, that's true. She said, you... You see, um, but there's one thing you should know. This is the third time this has happened in five years. So I reached over and hit the guy in the mouth. <laughs> I didn't do that, but I, I kind of wanted to. You're sitting here telling me. <laughs> Reminds me of these guys. We are honest men. We're not spies. <clears throat> and I looked at him and I said, is that true? He said, yeah. I said, okay, we don't have much time. Here's the deal. Uh, you're upset because your wife doesn't trust you? I don't even know you and I don't trust you. Now, if it was the reverse and she had done this, would you trust her? No, you'd be crazy to trust her. Therefore, she'd be crazy to trust you. Now, you'd like to be trusted, wouldn't you? All right, now I'm going to take you at face value. This is three times in five years. Here's the deal. You're not at zero when it comes to trust. You're in trust deficit. You're sort of like the federal government. <laughs> you got a lot of ground to make up. You're upset that for six months you've been clean and she can't trust you? Let me, let me just throw something on the table here for you to think about. What you need to do, you haven't, you've been clean for six months, that's great. You need to be clean for seven years. I just threw that out. It sounded biblical to me. <laughs> I kind of a Bible ring to it. You be clean for seven years. No women, no sleeping around, no secretary, no, no. Seven years. And then, and then you'll be back to zero. And then from there, you can begin to get into the plus column. But you're so far in deficit, you want to be trusted? Then be trustworthy. See, he wanted to reconcile it and fix it right then. You know the problem with that is? Shallow repentance leads to superficial reconciliation. If you're repentant, let's see it. You want to get this fixed? Let's see it. And we're not going and, and, and it may be genuine, it may be real. There's a godly sorrow. If there's a godly sorrow, it's not going to just last six months. She'll see it next year and the next year 
and the next year. And you know, quite frankly, it won't take her seven years because be, she'll begin to see the real thing. That's why Joseph was being used by God to put the screws on these guys. For so long, they had been superficial. For so long, they had rejected truth that they were going to be tested, and they were going to feel the full weight. They were going to be disciplined. Now, that's how God works with us. Not because he wants to ruin us, but because he wants to rebuild us. He's going to test us. He's going to test us. Joseph was tested. They're going to be tested. I'm tested. You'll be tested. Does it make sense? You wouldn't be here unless you wanted to be used by God. God always tests those whom he will use. See, Steve, I haven't passed the test. It's all right. Let's start passing. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He's given you the church. His divine power has granted to us everything we need, Peter said, pertaining to life and godliness. Let's pass the test. He's got good things in mind for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word and for the practicality of it. Uh, most of us have been there. We've been disciplined. It's not pleasant. We don't enjoy it. Um, but you love us, and you're not going to let us get away with it. You, you want to turn us into mature men. And uh, we've all wandered, and we've all done stupid things, and, and, and then in your goodness, you let us come um, to feel the weight of our sin and the weight of our foolishness. And then the next time we ponder it, we remember that weight and we remember that discipline. And we remember that strap on our rear end and we think, I don't think I want to do this again. I think I want to follow now. Train us. Give us receptive hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.